Recovery Elevator, episode 107. And I, the, the thing that made it so special for me, and it's the, the, the thing that I, I loved alcohol for, was for the first time that I could remember, I was sort of happy to be who I was, and I was happy to be where I was. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator Podcast. My name is Paul. Thank you so much for joining us. According to the Recovery Elevator sobriety tracker on my phone, I've been sober for two years, five months, and two weeks. On today's podcast, we've got Paul Garrigan. He's been sober for quite some time, and he is a mindfulness guru. And it's fitting that the topic for today's podcast is mindfulness and what mindfulness really is. But before we get any further, let's hear from Cafe RE. Before I got sober, I felt alone. It felt like I was the only one in the whole world who found it extremely difficult to stop drinking once I had started. With Cafe RE, I now know I'm not alone. In fact, there are so many people all around this world just like me. In Cafe RE, for $12 a month, I get access to a private, unsearchable Facebook group where I can connect with other like-minded individuals, meet with them face-to-face in several weekly live webinars and meetings, I can get paired with an accountability partner who has a similar sobriety date as mine, I can attend in-person meetups and attend exclusive sober trips to places like Costa Rica. If there's one thing I've learned in sobriety, it's that I can't do this alone. Go to recoveryelevator.com and use the promo code ELEVATOR for your first month free. Again, use the promo code ELEVATOR when signing up for your first month free. Okay, let's get started. In short, mindfulness is a coping strategy. You'll see in the next podcast, that's one of the reasons why we drink is because we have shit coping strategies. Mindfulness means maintaining a moment-by-moment awareness of our thoughts, feelings, bodily sensations, and surrounding environment. When is the last time you looked at a tree, for example? No, not passing by in a car or walking or running by, but really looked at a tree. Saw how beautiful that tree was. Are there leaves on the tree? What color is the tree? Does the tree have a smell? Touch the tree. Is it smooth? Is it rough? Is the tree cold? Does it look like the tree is holding vital life and nutrients inside of it? What do the leaves look like? Just imagine that the majority of the tree is underneath the ground on its roots. How strong that tree is. Mindfulness also involves acceptance, meaning that we pay attention to our thoughts and feelings without judging them, without believing, for instance, that there's a right or wrong way to think or feel in any given moment. When we practice mindfulness, our thoughts tune into what we're sensing in the present moment rather than rehashing the past or imagining the future. Now, this could be the paramount focal point of my recovery. Being mindful and present in the moment is something that I've always struggled with. You've heard me say many times on this podcast that I've got ADHD, professionally diagnosed no more than four times by clinical professionals. For somebody like me, being in the moment is hard. I'm always looking at the metaphorical watch on my wrist. We all know our watches on our cell phones these days, but you get the point. I'm always thinking about what's in the past, what's in the future. So why practice mindfulness? Studies show that practicing mindfulness, even for just a few weeks, can bring a variety of physical, psychological, and social benefits. And here are some of the benefits. Mindfulness is good for our bodies. A seminal study found that after just eight weeks of training, practicing mindfulness meditation boosts our immune system's ability to fight off illnesses. Hmm, if you live in an Arctic climate like myself up in Bozeman, Montana, the plague ravished this area. Everybody seemed to have the worst cold of their entire lives. And I didn't get it. Could be mindfulness, could be the copious amounts of vitamin C I take. I don't know, but I didn't get it. Let's keep going. Mindfulness is good for our minds. Several studies have found that mindfulness increases positive emotions while reducing negative emotions and stress. Hmm, let's replenish those adrenal glands. 
Indeed, at least one study suggests it may be as good as antidepressants in fighting depression and preventing relapse. Side note, I read the other day that a handful of cashews is equivalent to one dose of Prozac. Guess who went to Costco yesterday and bought a handful of cashews? Paul. And not Paul the interviewee for today, Paul, this guy. This is pretty cool. Mindfulness changes our brains. Research has found that it increases density of gray matter in brain regions linked to learning, memory, emotion, regulation, and empathy. Mindfulness helps us focus. Paul, listen to this one. Mindfulness helps us focus. Studies suggest that mindfulness helps us tune out distractions and improve our memory and attention skills. Mindfulness fosters compassion and altruism. Research suggests mindfulness training makes us more likely to help someone in need and increases activity in neural networks involved in understanding the suffering of others. Have you ever watched an ant just cruise around the pavement? That is a fantastic mindfulness exercise. I guarantee it, after you watch an ant cruise around the pavement or the forest floor for a couple minutes, you're not going to step on the ant. In fact, you'll probably pick it up, put it on a tree, and out of harm's way. This one might seem like a no-brainer, but mindfulness enhances relationships. Research suggests mindfulness training makes couples more satisfied with their relationships, makes each partner feel more optimistic and relaxed, and makes them feel more accepting of and closer to one another. Indeed, I can see how being in the moment, engaged in a conversation with another human being, instead of looking at your metaphorical watch all the time, will bolster that relationship. So you might be saying to yourself, Paul, this is a drinking podcast. Why in the hell are we talking about mindfulness? Well, like I mentioned before, we alcoholics, we have shit coping strategies. I can only speak for myself on that one, but I know the majority of us do. Many of us drink lots of the depressant called alcohol. And many of us, like myself, have experienced depression. When depression starts to pull us down, we often react for very understandable reasons. By trying to get rid of our feelings, by suppressing them, by trying to think our way out of them. In the process, we dredge up past regrets and conjure up future worries. In our heads, we try out this solution and that solution. And it doesn't take long for us to start feeling bad for failing to come up with a way to alleviate the painful emotions we're feeling. We get lost in comparisons of where we were versus where we want to be soon living almost entirely in our heads. That right there is saying we're always in the doing mode instead of the being mode. Mindfulness is all about being in the being mode, not the doing mode. How prevalent is depression in today's society? Around 12% of men and 20% of women will suffer major depression at some time of their lives. The first episode of a major depression typically occurs in the mid-20s. A substantial proportion of people experience a first full episode in their late childhood or adolescence. At any one time, some 5% of the population are suffering from depression of this severity. Wow, that seems like a lot to me. Unfortunately, sometimes the depression persists. 15-39% to 39 of cases may still be clinically depressed one year after symptoms onset, and 22% of cases remain depressed two years later. Wow. Each episode of depression increases the chances that a person will experience another episode by 16%. 10 million people in the United States are taking prescription antidepressants. So again, back to the drinking component of this podcast. Drinking often makes us depressed. Mindfulness is a fantastic way to get out of this depression. And here's a great way to practice mindfulness. Pick up any object around you. To my right lies a pen. I'm going to do this with you guys right now. I've got a Pilot G2-07 Bic ballpoint pen. Now it may appear just to be a normal writing instrument, but when I fully engage my eyes with this pen, it's incredible. I have a blue rubber grippy thing where my fingertips are. Helps me navigate my pen stroke to accurate precision. On the front, there is a 
point, which to me, I still don't understand how ink comes out of it at a gradual manner and doesn't spill out all at once. Inside the clear capsule, I see a spring. When my thumb presses the top, it goes up and down. Listen, that's my pen clicking. I can unscrew my pen. Inside, there are several more components that just amaze me. Oh, wait a second. The further I look, there's writing imprinted on the inside of the pen. How is a tiny printer going to do such a thing? The tip unscrews and wait, oh, there's more magic inside there. How this pen was ever created was a mystery to me and it's simply incredible. Now this exercise that I just did, I was fully enthralled with my pen as you can tell by listening to that. It took about 15 to 20 seconds and any object can do. You can pick up a stapler, you can whip a pen, you can pick up a baby, it doesn't really matter. But being fully mindfulness in that moment and being appreciative of what we are given today is the way out of depression. So next time you're driving your car, be cognizant of what's around you, the lanes, how straight they are, and try to be fully in the moment. Now I'm excited to hear from Paul, who is the mindfulness guru. Paul, how are you? I'm very good, Paul. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for joining us. Now, listeners. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, absolutely. Now, listeners, you guys are in for a treat. I met Paul in person when I was volunteering at Hope Rehab in Thailand. However, I listened to his podcast before I started the Recovery Elevator podcast. He had a podcast about recovery, and I took walks around my neighborhoods you know, when I was uh, getting stuff ready for the Recovery Elevator podcast launch. So I got to say thank you for that. You've been a big part of my recovery. And just how small this world is, we met in person, and you told me about your podcast, and I'm like, yeah, you know, I, I, I do recognize that voice. I've, I've listened to it for hours already. So, Paul, I got I to gotta say thank you for that, and uh, yeah, how's it going today? Yeah, it is a, it is a small world, isn't it? it yeah, it's, well, is. it's, it's evening here in Thailand. Actually, it's nine at, nine, not nine at night, so yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, and right now it's Wednesday where I'm at. It's, it's Thursday where you are, right? It's hold on, there you got me. No, it's still Wednesday here. Oh, it's just Wednesday night. Yeah, it's just Wednesday night. Yeah, gotcha. I think we're must be something like twelve hours ahead or something, are we? Yeah, I remember when I when I came back, I had almost two Fridays. It was the weirdest experience. I flew back on the airplane basically all day Friday. I got off the airplane and I got a bonus Friday coming back. It would have been great if I could have enjoyed it, but that thing called jet lag, I just hit a wall. Yeah, like Back to the Future. <laughs> Serious. Just minus the DeLorean. I was in a Cessna or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Something a little bigger than a Cessna, but you get the point. But, Paul, let's uh, let's jump right into this thing. How long have you been sober? Over 10 years. Over 10 years. Congratulations, yeah. man. Nice job. I mean, I sort of I was trying to stop for almost, I suppose, 18 years. Like, I hit my first rehab at 19. Oh, at age 19? Yeah, I hit my first rehab at 19. I started still going at 35. <laughs> there we go. Now, give listeners a little background about yourself, Paul. Maybe where you're from, what you do for a living, are you married? What do you like to do for fun? So, I'm originally from Ireland, but I've lived here in Thailand for, I guess, 17 years. Um, yeah, I'm married, have a, have a young son, a nine year old son, who's uh, the, you know, one of the great gifts of my new life. What do I like to do for fun? Um, speak to people like you. <laughs> <laughs> and like I mentioned, you guys are in for a treat. Paul is a recovery guru, and uh, in my opinion, his specialty is is mindfulness, and that is the topic of today's podcast episode. We're going to get to that in a moment, but I'm going to want to hear more about your story, Paul. 
back me up to around age 19, maybe even age 18, 17 or, or after that. Did you ever have yeah. rules in place with your drinking, you know, before you went to treatment say, you know what, I'm only, I'm only drinking on the weekends. I'm only drinking from 5 PM on and no school nights. And did any of those rules work? You know, in, in the beginning, I, I didn't have, really have any rules because when I, fa- I found alcohol, I suppose about 15, and it seemed to be exactly what I was looking for. Uh, it's, you know, it, it seemed to give me this amazing comfort. So as far as I was concerned, you know, I couldn't get enough of it. And can you explore a little bit more on that? And you said exactly what I was looking for. That's been a common theme on this podcast. And I can speak from my personal experiences. When I first drank alcohol, it was like this magical liquid potion. And tell me more about yeah. that. What was it like for you? So, you know, when, when I first started drinking, it would have been, you know, in the 80s, early, you know, it was about 85, 86. I mean, I remember going into my, one of my first bars, and I can even remember the song. It was, you know, that Whitney Houston song, I Want to Dance with Somebody. That I didn't particularly like the song, yeah, but it really sort of stands out. And I remember got, getting served in this bar like I was well underage. And the thing that made it so special for me and the, the, the thing that I, I loved alcohol for was for the first time that I could remember, I was sort of happy to be who I was and I was happy to be where I was. And that's what sort of sold me to alcohol. And I remember even even in those early days, even sort of being hung over, I actually enjoyed that. So it was just sort of numbness. You know, I was really un- uncomfortable in my own skin. So being being drunk or being numb from a hangover were perfect for me, you know, in, in the beginning. That's interesting you say that even the hangover was somewhat pleasurable because you're right. There it is there is a numbing sensation to a hangover. You're just dead to the world and, and oftentimes you're not feeling those regular feelings of life in a hangover. So I yeah, I, I definitely can resonate what you said there and talk me through the time after Whitney Houston just sang right to your heart. What happened after <laughs> so, that? So- so so what so what happened after that was I about I suppose I was eighteen, I moved to England and I got, I got a job working in a bar. So basically I could you know I could drink all day and all night. This is back in those days you were allowed to actually drink behind the bar as long as you stuck to halves and as long as you <laughs> stuck to lager. But that was like that wasn't really a problem for me, you sure. know. And I was sort of you know, so you know in the beginning I didn't really there didn't seem to be any problem, you know, because I could stay drunk all the time. And it wasn't until I met a girl there. You know, she, she was a Scottish girl, and I started going out with her, and she realized right away that, you know, me, me and bars didn't really work well together. <laughs> so she, 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 ta- she talked me into leaving, and it was actually then that I realized what a problem I was, because suddenly I couldn't drink all the time because I, I had no money. And then I started I started doing quite desperate things, and you know, one of the real desperate things I did was I, I stole, stole her cassette tapes and sold them so I could buy, buy alcohol one day. Just and out also, of curiosity, you know, Paul, how, how much would you get for a stolen cassette tape on the on, on the black market? Then, oh, it would have been it would have been a few pence. You know, would it probably would have been ninety nine pence or something. This is back in the eighties, like that, you like know, Irish bucks? pence. Um, yeah, I suppose so. Yeah, yeah, probably. Yeah, it wouldn't have been much at all because you, you, like you know they weren't they weren't playing, and, and I, I was just sort of desperate for money. Sure. Yeah, I couldn't. I couldn't. I really couldn't tell you how much. But it wasn't. It was enough. It was enough for a few, for a few beers. But I felt even even doing it, I knew, I knew it was a really terrible thing to be doing. But I just, I just had to have sort of alcohol that day. Did any of those tapes really sting? Was there like a Bon Jovi greatest hits tape that you're like, man? There are, actually, well, she, she, there are, it was Guns and Roses, and it was a Transvision Vamp. I remember those. <laughs> I can't remember 
with many more of them. I think she had, oh yeah, good that Good Morning Vietnam soundtrack. She liked that as well. Yeah. But I remember having to face her, you know, because I was, I was drunk when I faced her, and I just told her right away, and just the, the look of disappointment. So she actually got me to move. This is all in the space of a year. She got me to move to Glasgow with her because she thought maybe the problem was that we moved to Ireland. Hmm. You know, moved there, and it just got worse, and she kicked me out. And that's how I ended up at my first rehab because I, I basically went there to get her back. So even, even when I went to my first rehab, I didn't really feel that alcohol was a problem for me. Now so tell me you know, after that first rehab, so you said you went to rehab, but you didn't really feel that alcohol was a big problem for you. What was your no, thinking No, I, I, I went there to get my girlfriend back, basically. Gotcha. The mixtapes were gone, but you thought you could get your girlfriend back at rehab, and how did that work out? I did get back with her for a short while, but it, but it, it didn't work out at all. I mean, because there's no way I was going to stay stay sober. And after a few months, I kind of realized and that, you know, that it was never going to work with her if I started drinking again. So I just basically, I, I just basically chose alcohol over her. Hmm. I went back to working in bars and stuff, yeah. And for, it sounds like, eight years, were you just in and out of different bar establishments working as a bartender or a barkeeper? Yeah. Yeah, so the next few years, yeah, I just worked in bars. I, but I actually got back into education as, as well because I got kicked. I got kicked out of school when I was um, fifteen for you know stealing all the wine. So you went back to school in your twenties then. In my yeah, my twenties went back to school. Yeah, and uh, I actually I went what we called an access, an access course, which is to get you back into university. And I actually passed all of that and. I was accepted for university, but on the day I got the letter accepting me back to university or entry to university, I just went a bit crazy and I just, uh, I just, I couldn't stop drinking. Like so, what should have been like, you know, one of the the best days of my life. I just went on this complete bender, like you know, just nonstop drinking. It went on for days, and I started getting more and more um, messed up mentally. Okay. And later on, I was kind of diagnosed as like alcohol-induced depression. But what was happening, I was getting more and more sort of, um, you know, I couldn't stop drinking, basically. I couldn't go, to, then I couldn't go to work. Then, you know, I, I wasn't able to go back to my flat because I couldn't pay the bills. And I, I ended up basically on the, on the streets in this really horrific sort of mental state. But I basically, I remember at, at that time thinking, I just wish somebody would come along and put me sort of in some kind of psychiatric ward. Because I was just so off my head, but there's no way I could do it myself because I was having, you know, I couldn't speak to anyone. There's no way I could fill out forms, sure. you know. I could. It got to a stage where I couldn't even buy alcohol anymore because I was having these panic attacks. Let me just recap this for a second, Paul. So you got a letter saying you were accepted in a university. Yeah. You went to celebrate on a binge and basically drank till you no longer could even fill out the forms to go to university or fill out the well, forms. I, 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 couldn't it fill out their forms because at that stage I knew I was sort of in, in in a bad state mentally, and I knew I should be in some type of hospital or something. But I couldn't, you know, the, the idea of going to a hospital was just I, I I knew I'd have to speak to people and fill out forms. So there was no way I, I could even consider that. And I remember just used to walking around just hoping someone would notice how distressed I was. So you basically drank yourself homeless, and did that person ever come by to help you fill out the forms? What happened? Uh, so something strange happened. I was wandering. There's a part of London called uh, New Cross, and somehow I ended up wandering around there. And there's this, there's this sort of office there called the Alcohol Recovery Project. Now, yeah. apparently, like, you know, did no sign or anything, but somehow I must have spoke to somebody. I, 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 it's, such, it's such a confusing time, but I somehow ended up in that office, and from there I got help. 
and I've no idea how what got me in there. What kind of help did you get? They end up putting me in the dry house. Okay, so did you, you did not it, end it, up going to a psychiatric ward? No, no. They, they think they read, they got me to a doctor, and he says no, it's alcohol induced. Alcohol induced depression. Yeah. And what? How old are you when that happened? I would have been twenty five. Twenty five. Okay. And then, so how long were you in the dry house for? A year. A year, and is is that when the yeah. sobriety finally took hold? Yeah. So at that time, well, at that time, I stayed sober for two years. So what, and what it was. So the reason we stayed in the dry house for the year because I ended up homeless. So the idea was that if you if you stayed in the dry house for a year, they gave you yeah, a council flat, like which is like a you know, government funded flat. Okay. And so yeah, you, you just have to sort of stay sober. So I, I, I went through that, and you know, and after that, I stayed sober for another year after that. And then what happened after that? So it sounded like you were almost three years sober. And no, two years. Yeah. So, okay, two years sober. I was also sober for two years, and then I drank again. I kind of know I was a dry drunk, but what do you think happened with you? I got sick of being in recovery. Hmm. It's a short, it's a, it's a long and short of it. Um, so when I got back, so I, I, you know, for the first say, for the first eighty months, I was very, very enthusiastic. Maybe even twenty months, I was very enthusiastic. So at that stage, I got really into the twelve steps, and I was going to twelve step meetings every day. Um, you know, I, I did all of the stuff that sponsored all of that sort of thing. But during the same time as well, I got back into education, and I did get accepted for university. And I got accepted to train as a nurse to do my my, my nursing training. And so near, near the end, I, I just got, I just, I started that training. I think it was in the April, and I just. Just feeling, you know, just uh, I was really missing out on something as well, because you know, for me, going to university was always going to be about drinking. Sure. Like the student bars. So there was, there was that sort of thing, and, and I just felt really like I was missing out on something with that. But there was also this sense I, I just I was just kind of fed up talking about my addiction all the time and thinking about my addiction all the time, and especially for the last, you know, the last few months, that two years, I was, I was always thinking about alcohol. So it sounded like the like, mental obsession was still there? It's, it, it came back more and more, yeah. And why do you think it came back more and more? You know, I, I'm not, I, I suppose I opened the door to it. I suppose, you know, with the, with the whole university thing sort of starting again, you know, the thoughts come up, oh, student union bars, and where before I would have just dismissed it, I started to sort of entertain it. Also, I start, you know, I got in this idea of not being able to go to clubs and not being able to meet women. I started going, you know, with, with sober friends going to clubs who didn't, you know, didn't drink. Mm-hmm. But it was just, it was all a slippery thing, you know. Yeah, you know what a wise man once told me, the road to recovery narrows. In, in fact, I think that was you who told I think that was you who <laughs> yeah. said that in Thailand. <laughs> Could very well be, yeah. I, I, no, I would have still yeah, stole off something else. You. Do you think that had something to do with it? When you said that, that really resonated with me, basically saying that the things that I'm doing now in my recovery, they need to constantly be evolving. Yeah, yeah, exactly. See, something else, you know, happened during those, during the first few months of that two-year period, I I had this experience, I had this amazing kind of, out of nowhere, I had this incredible spiritual experience one day in a bus, and I sort of feel so that after that, I somehow sold out in that experience, if that makes sense. Not really. Tell me more about that. Well, but, but the experience was, you know, it was an incredibly, it was an incredible experience of oneness. It was an incredible, basically, 
everything I ever wanted. It was just sort of, you know, an incredible experience, something that you sort of, you, you get in meditation usually, but it came out of completely nowhere. And for weeks after, I was on this amazing sort of bliss and it really, really motivated me, you know, to, to get my life in line to something that would get me to, to, to sort of, you know, that being more part of my life. But I think somewhere along the way, I kind of lost sight of that, that sure. I sort of settled for, I, I started being pulled more towards things like, you know, my nursing degree and all of that kind of stuff. Gotcha. And, and so while you were getting your nursing degree, were you still, were you still drinking? Oh, yeah. Well, I started, yeah. Since I started, I started drinking, yeah. Okay. So you started up so, again. Well, it's actually about four months into when I started drinking again, yeah. So then what was your bottom, you know, over 10 years ago that caused you to, you know, to leap, leapfrog into sobriety? So I drank for another, about another 10 years after that. And during that time, it just got, you know, so it was quite strange because, you know, people sort of say, if you drink again, it'll just get worse. Mm-hmm. It didn't seem to at first. It got different. And that's what really confused me. Well, like, you know, for the first few months, it did actually seem like I had some control. And, and that sort of confused me. And it gave me, but it gave me this sort of false confidence. But what, I, and I didn't, and because I didn't end up, end up in that mental state again, I just thought, I assumed I must make, well, maybe it's not so bad. But it just, it just, things got worse and worse for me. Like, my, you know, I got through my nursing, my nursing training. But, I, you know, I lost so many sort of friendships and stuff because of drinking during that time. And, you know, I would have been, I was paying a higher and a higher price and, and I couldn't really stop. Sure. And then after I qualified, I, just, I would just move around a lot. Like I'd, I'd work somewhere for a year and then I'd move somewhere else. But, you know, the drinking was getting worse and worse. And it got so bad that um, I decided to go to Saudi Arabia. And, and during this time, I'd actually been back. I'd been back to AA and stuff to try and stop. But I could never stop again. Mm-hmm. But I went to Saudi Arabia because I assumed I got heard that there was no alcohol in Saudi Arabia. So I thought, if, you know, and it's very easy for nurses to go there and they earn good money. So I thought if I went there, you know, what could possibly go wrong? This sounds like the ultimate geographical cure where you go somewhere where alcohol literally is not the customary norm and you cannot get it. How did this geographical cure work out for you? Absolutely terrible. Saudi Arabia is the worst rehab in the world. <laughs> just just well, a hot so and balmy I, 45 degrees Celsius daily. Yeah. So I landed, I landed in, in Riyadh. And before I got there, I had to have medical tests done. It turned out my liver being damaged. Mm. No, I had a, elevated NFTs and all of that. So, you know, I had to get there really quick. But my first night there, you know, I was, meet, I was met by um, a representative of the, the complex where I, was, where I was staying. And one of the first things he showed me was these, like, basically dustbins full of alcohol, illegal alcohol. Hmm. That was really, really strong, incredibly cheap. And I just knew this is not going to work as a rehab. And, you know, it was, my drinking got a lot worse there. You, and, well, your drinking you know, got worse at the rehab facility? It wasn't a rehab facility. It was Saudi Arabia. It's just, I was kind of joking. Oh, oh okay. Gotcha. <laughs> God, I don't think there, I don't think there are, any, are any rehabs. No, I went there to work as a nurse. I was treating it as an unofficial rehab, if that makes sense. Sure. But so, you know, like I got there. Alcohol was, was very, very plentiful. And, you know, I, w- I wasn't the only person to kind of make that mistake. There was another guy there. He'd gone there for the same reason before I arrived. And he'd actually, he actually died there from uh, soft heel viruses, which is, you know, it's from your liver. When your liver fails and you start, um, yeah, you know, so, he, wow. so it's just because, you know, this, this alcohol is just freely available and it's incredibly strong because it's homebrew. Sure. And so I kind of realized that if, if I stayed there, you know, I, I probably wasn't going to make it either. So, so I left, like, you know, within the year. And, ended, and that's how I ended up in Thailand, basically. Okay. 
And did you actually get into rehab in Thailand? Well, what what had happened? See, I, I'd actually been into into meditation for you know since my te- like teenage years, mm-hmm. and e- e- even before I got into alcohol. See, see, when my parents were, were splitting up, you know, which is a lot, a lot of this sort of happened around this time. My first sort of escape was sort of you know meditation, and you know, and, and I I got some relief from doing meditation. So you know, because my you know it was a very horrible breakup. I used to, I remember in the evenings, you know, only be, only be a young kid. And I started be sitting there meditating, and I'd be able to get into this space where I could basically just escape the thoughts. Mm-hmm. And for a while, that that kind of worked, until like one evening, I just you know I opened up some vodka and I drank vodka instead. <laughs> but I but I always knew in the back of my head that like you know that maybe meditation is the answer. And every time I would stop, even during that two years when I was in the dry house, and, and later on, I kept on going back to meditation, and I was doing a lot of tai chi and stuff. I I kind of always knew that 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 was somehow going to work i mean i i had the wrong idea about it but uh, you know I, I i was going in the right direction so what do you mean that you happened? had the wrong idea about it but you had going on the right direction because like when i first in the beginning and even afterwards like i kept on using meditation the same way as i was using alcohol to basically escape reality okay and it was only when i started using meditation to get into reality can you explain that a little bit more to us yeah, so, so you know, I've always been away with the kind of away with the fairies. I've always been sort of you know lost in my thoughts and, mm-hmm. and sort of all you know get very ungrounded. So I used to be attracted to kind of the meditations that would make that would kind of make me even more ungrounded. You know, to get into these very sort of blissful states, and that's what I thought meditation was about was to get into these blissful states. And it took me years to realize no, it, it, the meditation is to get you into reality, to get you grounded. <laughs> gotcha. So you you're meditating to almost get like uh, you know drunk on meditation, but it would really exactly. you're to get sober with meditation. Gotcha. Exactly, exactly, and that was a sort of a mistake I made for a long time. So like seventeen years ago, I, I came to Thailand, and what I started doing, I started turning up at temples, and I'd go on a meditation retreat, I'd go back drinking, I'd go on a meditation retreat, I'd go back drinking, and until I ended up in this uh, this um, temple called Wat Rampong in, in Chiang Mai. And what this was a very very intense meditation retreat. It was a 26 day one, and I went in there in my drawers. I was sort of shaking, and for the first few days, and it starts off sort of meditating. I think it was eight hours, and it builds up and builds up and builds up until the last three days. You basically meditate for 72 hours. Wow! It's called a determination, and at the at the end of that, I I, I experienced sort of freedom. I experienced real mental freedom. Now, like you know, as you might. Have, expect of being an alcoholic i sort of left and i had this great idea that I basically i'm so i've so got it now that i need to see if, if i could safely drink <laughs> as you and say so, the most dangerous words right before that i so got this right now i want to go see yeah. if i can drink <laughs> yeah it was just what absolutely I, I i ordered half a beer my mind was absolutely crystal clear and i had half a beer but it, it was like pouring sewage into my head and all of the clarity that I had completely disappeared within half a beer. I drank for another two years, like trying to stop again, but it was by far so much worse after I'd experienced that freedom. Hmm. But you know what, Paul? Even though I didn't stop drinking then, that was actually kind of the end of my drinking. It was finished then because I actually had, I had experienced something better. Wow. And... And I want to kind of fast forward to the, the mindfulness component of it. How mm-hmm. similar is meditation to mindfulness? 
So me- meditation is so mindfulness is like an aspect of meditation. So what what we mean by mindfulness is this ability to be able to you know objectively sort of ex- you know observe our, our thoughts and emotions. It's like taking this backward step. And the reason that's important, like so, what I realized for me, you know, what my biggest problem always was this, you know, feeling uncomfortable in my own skin, and that's why I kept on going back to alcohol. You know, there, there would always be reasons for it. I mean, I'd always have these stories about, oh, you know, you, you know, I, I don't feel comfortable talking to women, but it was basically all this, this not feeling comfortable with myself. Sure. And when I say, you know, and so when I said, like, you know, during the the nineties, this thing about not being completely sick of recovery I was completely sick of thinking about myself and I knew I knew a way to stop that I knew alcohol could help me stop that at least for a few hours true you know I, I was just sick of my stories in my head you know stories 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 the, the thing that happened that um so we, what, what mindfulness sort of can do is allows us to take these backward steps that we start to not to not to literally stop the, the, the thoughts or the stories but we no longer need to sort of identify with them so strongly. So what are some, some quick and easy, not say quick and easy, but what are some basic steps that we can do to enter more of a mindfulness state, shall we say? Okay, see, I, I think it's best for people to work on what they already do, and that's the wonderful thing about kind of mindfulness. Is it's, it's, a lot of it is stuff we kind of know already. So do you remember I said during that, during that, that period where I got really mentally distressed? One of the things I was doing was walking around all the time, and that was the, that sort of gave me some relief. Mm-hmm. See, when our attention is on something physical, your, our attention can only be on, on one thing at a time. So when it's on something physical, it's not going to be on the thinking. So the first thing I usually suggest for people to do if they want to, you know, to practice mindfulness, from, like the very first step is to start bring their attention to physical sensation. Now, this is something we tend to do anyway. If we're mentally distressed, we may pace up and down already. And just to do that more deliberately, that's actually a form of meditation. Just pacing back and forth will qualify as meditation? Yeah, absolutely. It's, even, it's called walking meditation. But, but even doing it in, 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 a, you know, in a less organized way, you know, to just bring our attention to something physical. So one of the, things we, the first things we do at Hope is we give people what are called these mala beads. So rather, it's, and I call it lazy person's pacing. So rather than having the pace back and down, you just sort of feel the beads, feel the beads in their fingers. And what this is doing, it's sort of increasing our focus for meditation. It is a meditation in itself. And we start to, you know, get a break from the thinking. And it's from that break that we start to be able to sort of see that, hold on, you know, a lot of these thoughts are actually kind of, you know, are the problem. It's only the thoughts that are telling me my life is is dissatisfying, and when I'm not lost in them, it doesn't sort of feel so dissatisfying. Gotcha. And and, and how do you use is meditation and mindfulness been pretty much sounds like the pivotal point of your recovery? It, it, ha, it has been. Yes. Yeah. So like ten years. So my my approach is is kind of different than than what other people might do. Because, you know, I, I tried all different approaches. And in the end, you know, for me, after I had that experience, I knew that I had to be, you know, I wanted, that's what I wanted. Mm-hmm. So it's been, it's been basically mindfulness. I would say it's kind of gone beyond mindfulness now because once you, once you, you go so far with the practice, it, it just starts to become part of your life. Like once you start, like, so I, I say to people, like, you know, your mind's been tricking you. You know, through meditation, we gain what's called insight. And we can start to see how we're being tricked. Once we start to see how we're being tricked, you know, we, we're not so easily tricked in the future. 
Would you say we're being tricked by our inner voice, almost like our inner addiction lying to us in our own voice, or is that something different that's tricking us? Yes, yeah. So and that's what, like a craving. Yeah. So with craving, a craving like this, and there's lots of cravings in life, but the, the addiction cravings are particularly kind of nasty because they're sort of tied in with all these sort of you know phys- this physical stuff. Mm-hmm. But all it is is you know it's a it's this voice in your head. That sort of say, you know, that, that sort of wants us to, that understandably, like the body's addicted to a substance, you know, because we've been using it. But that, you know, that, that comes to us in a voice, you know, so say, you know, during that time, that two year period during the 90s, they, they say, they, they, you know, it's not just the craving isn't always obvious. So for me, it came at me with this idea about student union bars with all the great times, this sort of the, this voice that comes. Now, when I was giving my full attention and believing that thought, it, it really had me. When you sort of realize, when you sort of take this backward step, which sort of mindfulness allows us to do, just say, ah, oh, this is just something my brain is doing. As soon as we identify this is something that my brain is doing, it kind of loses its power. Interesting. It, and it's Paul, only because we sort of take it so personally. And Paul, what you mentioned when I was in Thailand, how the road to recovery narrows, mindfulness has already become a bigger part of my recovery and I got to say thank you for opening my eyes up to mindfulness. In fact, on the way back on the airplane, I started doing some research. You taught me a couple techniques when I was in there, just basic hand movements. I was doing Oh, the massage, the yeah. Yes, yes, exactly. Oh, brilliant. Yeah, brilliant. Giving more attention to the deliberate physical activities, something simple just as walking and focusing yeah, and on that's just step. And that's just the first step. That's just the very first step. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, there's more steps. There's, there's more steps. Because, see, I know we say that first step is about reconnecting with our bodies. But then we also have to reconnect with our emotions. Mm-hmm. So one of the big things with addiction is it's almost like we have this kind of allergic reaction to our emotions. And we just – and that's why we sort of we – we, we tend to drink on them. Wow. That's, that's amazing the way you place that. And, Paul, we have reached the rapid-fire round. If you can answer these questions within 30 to 60 seconds, that would be great. Are you ready? Okie doke, let's go then, yep. Okie doke, let's go then, yep. (laughs) Love it. Number one, Paul, what was your worst memory from drinking? I I would say sitting in a bar after I found out my liver had been damaged. Gotcha. Now, Paul, we've all heard of the aha moment. Did you ever have an oh shit moment indicating that you can't control your drinking? I think that time when I sold my girlfriend's music. Hmm, that that, that Guns N' Roses tape. That was the one, huh? That was the one. I probably did her a favor. (laughs) Now, Paul, with over 10 years of sobriety under your belt, what's your plan in sobriety moving forward? Just to keep showing up for life. Love it. And, Paul, what's your favorite resource in your recovery? That's a difficult one. I suppose the thing that I've, I've if I had to pick something, I would sort of say the Insight Timer, which is a meditation timer that I, that I use for years. The Insight Timer? Is that an app? Is that a book? It's an app, yeah. It's an app. Okay. The inside and it just time. times meditation, but it's probably it only times meditations and stuff, but it's probably the thing that I've used the most, to be honest hmm. with you. Inside timer. I've heard that before, but I'm actually going to download that. And Paul, in regards to sobriety, what's the best advice you've ever received? You know, Paul, I don't know why this advice meant so much to me, and I share with other people, but it really does. It's this, this idea that I would never regret not drinking yesterday. Hmm. I like that. That's kind of a play on words there. I like, it. I like that a lot. And what parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners who are in early recovery who are thinking about getting sober? You know, you know for me, you know, the, the, the options that were being offered to me weren't suitable for me in the end. And so what, what I would say to anybody, if you're really willing to change, 
there is going to be an option for you. And keyword, if you're really willing to change. If you're really willing to change, there will be an option. So just, you know, maybe it won't be the options that other people are doing, but the mo for me, the most important thing is this willingness to change. Willingness to change. That's a value bomb right there. There's a hard way to get sober and there's a harder way to get sober. And the hard way usually doesn't end to getting sober. It's the harder way is the pathway. Before we depart, Paul, give listeners your own customized. You might be an alcoholic if line. I actually did think about this, and the best I could come up with was, you must be an alcoholic if you keep having to say sorry for stuff you don't feel sorry for. <laughs> that, or you might be an alcoholic if Whitney Houston sings to your heart the very first time uh, you drank. Now, Paul, I never say she's, she sang to my heart. She was just in the background. <laughs> well, well, she has sang to my heart many times when I hear that song. Oh, I good, love good. that song. Oh, I want well, to dance with think- somebody. You can think of me now. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I will. Yes. Not of Whitney. I will think of Paul Garrigan. Yes. Yeah. I hope it doesn't ruin it for you. <laughs> no. Well, Paul, thank you so much for joining us today. Much appreciated. And thanks for being part of my recovery for actually a couple of years now, probably three years total since I've been listening to your podcast as well. So, And, and you also have a podcast with Hope Rehab Thailand. What's yeah. the name of that podcast? So it's the Hope Mindful Compassion Show. It actually replaced my podcast. that I, just, I kind of removed it and replaced it with the Hope one. So yeah, it's now it's in the same sort of feed, but it's the it's the Hope Mindful Compassion Show, and we can find that on iTunes and on iTunes, play. yeah, or or on the Hope Rehab site. It's hope Rehab dot com is that what it is? It's Hope Rehab Center Thailand dot com. Hope Rehab Center Thailand dot com. You can find yeah. links to the podcast there. It's probably in iTunes and Google Play. Again, Paul, thank you so much for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure. You have a great night out there in Thailand. Thank you, Paul. Nice speaking to you. Thank you. Now, before I get any further in the podcast, I want to say congratulations to Allison for one year of sobriety. You are a staple in the private community, Cafe RE. You're always creating graphics, but I want to take this time to give you a heartfelt congratulations on one year of sobriety. You rock. Bette Midler said it best, but you are the wind beneath my wings. Hmm. I wonder what Bette Midler's up to these days. As this will be my third time saying this in this podcast episode, we alcoholics, we have shit coping mechanism skills. A sign of progress happened to me last night at our hot garbage hockey game. Yep, that's the name of my hockey team we play on. The rink is being renovated, so we are in these makeshift tiny locker rooms. And it's customary after winning, well actually we don't do that very much, we more get our asses kicked out there. But after we lost our game last night, it's customary for everybody to drink some alcoholic beverages besides myself and a couple others on the team that I mentioned last episode. Anyways, we're crammed into our seats, taking our equipment off, and one guy hands a beer just right in front of me to the person to my left. It sat there inches away from my nose, from my mouth. And not to blame him, I don't think this guy knows that I'm an alcoholic or whatnot, but for a second it was there just right in front of my face before the other gentleman reached his hand across to take the cup, and instantly I closed my eyes and I said, God, Grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. When I opened my eyes, the glass was still there. I was like, damn it, Tommy, take this fucking beer away from me. But I got through the moment. I didn't even really want the drink, but it surprised me. I've said before on the podcast that the unconscious mind responds a third of a second faster than the conscious mind. My unconscious mind instantly wanted to lift my hand, grab the drink, and sip it. Now, let's get real. Not sip it. Drink the entire freaking drink. And before we depart, I want to remind you guys about the Recovery Elevator Retreat Camp RE, August 24th to 27th in beautiful Bozeman, Montana. 
If you have not been to this part of the country, I highly recommend you do so. First off, rent the movie, A River Runs Through It. Then go to recoveryelevator.com forward slash retreats. That's R-E-T-R-E-A-T-S. And sign up for the retreat. This is a personal wellness recovery retreat, non-12-step based. It is going to be an amazing time. We already have over a dozen people signed up, and I look forward to meeting all of these individuals in person. So, recovery elevator. We took the elevator down. We got to take the stairs back up. We can do this. 